traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. While tonight's Twilight Zone might not immediately jump out at you as terribly important in the scheme of the show, it is quite a gentle and low-key affair. There is one detail that purely by chance gives it a certain status as a landmark of sorts. And that detail is that this episode is a bookend. And the reason for that is it's written by a new Twilight Zone writer who would go on to pen eight episodes in total, one of which is the very last episode of season five of the show, which is called The Bewitching Pool. So eight episodes is a fairly significant number when we consider that the very respected George Clayton Johnson was involved in the writing of seven episodes. Richard Matheson wrote 14 episodes and had a couple more episodes based on his work. So this new writer certainly made a dent in the overall show count. His name is Earl Hamner Jr. And it's fair to say I think the popular opinion on those eight episodes that he wrote can be variable. But I like to think that here on the Twilight Zone podcast we can leave all of that baggage at the door and visit these episodes anew to see whether they stand up. Now sometimes during the Twilight Zone podcast, I will describe certain things as sailing-esque, but with the episode that we'll be discussing tonight, whether we agree on the quality or not, it's likely that when we hold it up against the rest of Elhamner's work, We'll agree that of all of his Twilight Zone episodes, this is probably the most Hamner-esque. Well, old man, what are you hollering about? You're gonna suffocate in there and lack air one of these days. Won't you leave a door open? Well, I gotta keep that dog out of the house somehow. Coming in here with his fleas and with his ticks. Oh, old woman, don't start that commotion up again. When I go in the house, Rip goes too. That dog saved my life. A rural setting, simple folk doing simple things. And from the moment we meet Rachel and Hyder Simpson, we get the impression that they're good people. So how is the Twilight Zone going to figure in their lives? We'll find out when we go on the hunt. Now you be careful, old man. Don't you worry about me, old woman. I'll be back even for midnight, more than likely. An old man and a hound dog named Rip offer an evening's pleasure in quest of raccoon. Usually these evenings end with one tired old man, one battle-scarred hound dog, and one or more extremely dead raccoons. But as you may suspect, that will not be the case tonight. These hunters won't be coming home from the hill. They're headed for the backwoods of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 26, 1962, written by Earl Hamner Jr. and directed by Harold D. Schuster. So as well as a first-time Twilight Zone writer, we have a first-time Twilight Zone director. But unlike Earl Hamner, this would be his first and last episode. Originally, Boris Segal was to direct it, but when the production date was changed, it then went to Schuster. Schuster was originally an actor, and IMDb has only one credit for a 1924 film called The Iron Horse, which was a silent movie. 
Now, Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia documents his early career in which he not only had a minor part in The Iron Horse, but he was also the assistant editor on it. And editing would then become a big part of his career, notably on his first editing job, the landmark movie by F.W. Menow called Sunrise. So after spending the late 20s and the early to mid 30s editing, he then moved on to directing. And a lot of his early film work in the 30s and 40s is a little before my area of expertise, but he did seem to work consistently, usually putting out a couple of films or sometimes more each year. As the 50s roll around, his credits then become a little more recognisable with television shows like Lassie or anthologies like Schlitz Playhouse. But having been born in 1902, by the time he got to the Twilight Zone, he would have been 60 years old, and his career was winding down, and he'd only direct one more thing after this, which was four years later in 1966, when he helmed an episode of the TV show The Legend of Jesse James. He would then live another 20 years until his passing in 1986. So Rod Serling's opening narration this time round is followed by one of those awkward and this time a little jumpy whip pans that tell us that he's not really there on set. And in fact, this opening narration was filmed along with narrations for The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank and The Arrival. So it seems that sometimes he kind of got a bunch of them out of the way at once. And as far as content goes, it's pretty straightforward. But what I like about this is that Despite Serling more or less saying, a man and his dog are about to die, he still has a certain amount of good humour in him, and I think this is quite in fitting with the depiction of death that we're going to get in this episode. Not as a scary thing at all, but we'll speak more about that later on. Earlier on in the story, we learn that the dog Rip had once saved the life of Hyder, and that's one of the reasons why he holds the dog in such high regard. So when Rip goes into a pond after a raccoon, Hyder doesn't hesitate to go in after him. And it's here that unfortunately, both of them meet their end. Hungry, ain't you, boy? Yeah, me too. Well, let's mosey along home and see what Rachel's got for breakfast. That old woman gives us hail Columbia. Staying out all night. When Hyder and Rip wake up in the morning, they clearly don't know that they've died. And as we've seen in the Twilight Zone before in episodes like The Hitchhiker, their spirits, I suppose, go on, independent of their body. And I think to his credit, El Hamner Jr. isn't trying to hide that this is the case. He's not trying to surprise the audience with this revelation that Rip and Hyder are dead. I think perhaps even then, the he's been dead all along trope had been done several times, but also, it's not really the point of this episode to try and wrong-foot the audience that way. So pretty much as soon as Hyder and Rip wake up, we get a scene where two local men are digging Rip's grave. It'll be kind of lonesome around here without old man Simpson. Morning, boys. Reckon them Miller boys gotten hard of hearing. What you old boys up to? Say what your boy's doing. All right, don't answer me then. I don't give a hoot what you're doing. If I ain't mistaken, you're digging this hole on my land. Now, if you want to dig, dig on your side of the fence. Get moving. I say get moving. So not only does this scene show us that Hyder has died, 
but also that he seems to have been well-liked and well-respected by the locals. So why don't we take a moment to meet the actor who plays him, and his name was Arthur Honeycutt. Arthur was born in 1910, and it seems he was originally heading to become a teacher, but he had to drop out of teaching college due to lack of money, but this led him to focusing on his acting career. Now here in this episode there is a certain authenticity about him as this rural American. Some actors have a certain look that will inform what parts they end up playing, and for him this grisly but kindly country persona was his stock in trade. And if you go down his list of credits, these types of roles are there in abundance. And in 1952, he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor in the Oscars for the Howard Hawks Western, The Big Sky. So how is he in this? Well, I didn't really have any issues with his performance because like I said, he is kind of authentic as this simple country man. But if you look at the entry about this episode in The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickrey is actually quite critical of it. And apparently, Earl Hamner had his reservations too. He said, The actor played the role of the old man much too seriously. He should have had fun with the role, rather than treating it so literally. It required a kind of homespun, tongue-in-cheek approach, because the idea of a hillbilly angel immediately imposes a certain kind of fun. You know, let's relax. This is a romp. So like I said, I never really had a problem with it before I read that, and I don't have a problem with it as such, but I do think there's a certain amount of truth in what Ailhamner says there, and later on in that entry, Mark Zickery says, imagine what the actor Will Gear would have done with the part. And I think that's, a, that's actually a pretty decent observation, but who Will Gear was and why he might have been better suited for it, we will talk about in a moment. So when Hyder and Rip get home, we find his wife Rachel ready to go to his funeral. Lord be with you, sister. Amen, brother. I appreciate your coming, even though he didn't belong to the church. I just never could get him to go. I realize Brother Simpson wasn't a religious man, but I figure he's still entitled to a Christian burial. Now just, just hold everything. Anybody's going to give Brother Simpson a burial, you'd better ask Brother Simpson how he feels about it. I just been sitting here, trying to figure it out. It was just last night. He was sitting there at the supper table. I begged him not to go. There's been omens. I've seen signs. But he went. The Lord works in mysterious ways. I can only guess that after he died, Hyder's body was found pretty quickly and that maybe in these early days in the country, they didn't wait around to bury their dead because it does kind of come around pretty fast. Hyder's wife Rachel is played by an actor called Jeanette Nolan, who I'm not going to talk about probably as much as I should, because she was a very, very prolific actor, and her body of work stretches from the golden age of radio to actually arriving on screen quite late, in her late 30s, playing Lady Macbeth in 1948. And it goes all the way up to the Robert Redford film, The Horse Whisperer, in 1998. She is one of those actors for whom I think a lot of people will probably have favourite roles and fond memories of some of those roles. And there's some nice trivia attached to her career as well, like she provided some of the voice work for Norma Bates in the film Psycho. Coincidentally, I actually watched an episode of the Night Gallery recently called The Housekeeper, in which she plays that titular part, but she's really quite fun in that as well. So in the hunt she'd have been about 50 or 51, and in her first Night Gallery appearance, she would have been touching 60, 
but both times I think her age is played up and she's playing older than she actually was because she does have a kind of youthful spark about her even when she's playing old. In the scene we've just heard, there is one detail that seems to slip in there as if it doesn't matter at all, but I think it is very important to this whole episode. So to understand why it's important, we need to take an extended detour and talk about our new Twilight Zone writer, Earl Hamner Jr. I mentioned earlier on that you could call this episode Hamner-esque. Now what I mean by that is that for a lot of us, the work we will most remember him for is the television show, The Waltons. And Hamner based this on his own life growing up in rural America during the Depression, and the character of John Boy Walton was based on him. But what's interesting to me is how El Hamner came to that point, and elements of his work leading up to the Waltons actually show you that kind of evolution, including the Twilight Zone. So it's similar to how Rod Serling would recycle ideas that perhaps didn't reach their full potential the first time round. And if you listen to the episode The Story of Dust, that kind of documents a really good example of that process, Serling reworking things. So if we go back to the beginning, Earl Hamner was born in 1923 and lived in the Virginia mountains. During the Depression, his father, Earl Hamner Sr., was forced to take a job in a factory 33 miles away and would have to travel home every weekend, a journey that consisted of two bus rides and then a six-mile walk home. Now Earl Hamner Jr. was a smart boy and later he'd say that he knew he wanted to become a writer from the age of six when his poem My Dog was published in the children's pages. So when he did become a writer, this aspect of his life growing up with a large family in the mountains became a major aspect of his work. Now if we look at the characters of Hyder and Rachel Simpson the elderly couple, there's one scene in particular that does ring a little familiar. When's the last time you got yourself kissed? <laughs> well, the way I figure it, it was in the spring of 1924. Well, I figure you got one coming. Don't you come near me, old man. Yes, sir, I've been thinking about giving you a kiss for the last month or two. Oh, I know you sit down and eat your supper and stop talking silly. <laughs> I'll have my supper now, old woman. So it's not so much that I think this scene was recreated later in the Waltons. It may have been, I'm not sure. But I think that affection and humour between the old man and the old woman is very reminiscent of the relationship with Grandma and Grandpa Walton in The Waltons and of course, Grandpa was played by Will Gear. And Hamner says in The Twilight Zone Companion, the similarity is not accidental because at that time I was working on a series of short stories called The Old Man and the old woman. Those characters that I used in the hunt also were later to become Grandma and Grandpa Walton. But apart from the short stories that Earl Hamner speaks of in The Twilight Zone Companion, these two characters actually appeared on television nine years earlier in a different television show, and I'll talk about that a little later on. But the next step for them is a 1963 film called Spencer's Mountain, which is based on an Earl Hamner Jr. novel. And I haven't seen it, but from what I've read, it is very much a proto-version of the Waltons about a large family that lives in the mountains. But the Waltons template isn't quite there yet, as apparently the themes are maybe a little more racy in nature. But then in 1971, a TV movie called The Homecoming, A Christmas Story was released. And this is more or less there in terms of what the TV show The Waltons would be. There are some differences, most notably the parents John and Olivia Walton in The Homecoming 
were played by Andrew Duggan and Patricia Neal, but when the Waltons began in 1972, they were recast with Ralph Waite and Michael Leonard. And there are some other differences, but you get the idea. A lot of the cast remained the same for the TV show. Now, the history of the Waltons and its success is a story all of its own that we're only really going to touch on here. But it is quite interesting because, apart from Grandma and Grandpa Walton being an evolution of the characters that we meet here in The Hunt, I think there is one other detail that is very significant. Earl Hamner Jr. was a man of faith. He believed in God and he went to church, as did his mother and the rest of his family, except for his father, Earl Hamner Sr., now, I can't find confirmation of whether that's due to him being an atheist or whether he was just more private in his faith and the way he practiced it. So this actually transfers over to the father in the Waltons, John Walton, who also doesn't go to church with the rest of the family. Whether they actually address why in the Waltons, I don't know. I'm not sure whether, again, it's because he was an atheist or he was just more private in his faith. But you can see how Hamner's reality has now affected his fiction. So the reason that this is significant is as we heard earlier, the character of Rachel Simpson says after Hyder has passed that he never went to church with her. And when we get to the end of this episode and ponder what it's all about, I think that this may be the most significant part of it for me. Now, there is a quote from Earl Hamner Jr. about Rod Serling that I'll read to you now. He says, I will always be grateful to Rod Serling for giving me my first writing assignment in Hollywood. Our paths had crossed twice before I came here. When we were still college students, we each won prizes for radio scripts we had submitted in a contest. On that occasion, we met in New York where the winners had been invited to pick up their checks and be guests on a special broadcast of the Dr. Christian show. A few years later, I resigned my job as a writer at radio television station WLW in Cincinnati to take time off to write a novel. Rod stepped into the job I vacated. Years later, when we would run into each other at Hollywood events, he would introduce me as the man who gave him his first job. Rod, more than any other man in my professional life, had the greatest influence on me through his kindness, his encouragement, his example, and his unique talent. I only have one regret. I thanked him from time to time, but that afternoon when I heard he was hospitalized, I said to myself, I will call him tomorrow. He died that night, and I did not get the chance to say goodbye, or let him know how very much he had meant to me. So that is very sad in and of itself. And I suppose in some very small way, it reminds me of when I actually started the Twilight Zone podcast. I knew that Earl Hamner was a writer in the show and he was still alive when I started the show. And I always planned that when I got to this point, I would send him a message via his website because he was very approachable online and ask him to come on and talk about his Twilight Zone writing. But unfortunately, the podcast took longer than I thought it would, and he passed away, so I missed that opportunity. And that's something that I always regretted. So back to our episode. Although we, the audience, know that Hyder and Rip are dead, Hyder seems a little bit slow on the uptake. But when he tries to follow Rachel to his own funeral... He comes across a fence, and it's here that we start to build up to our twist. Hey, friend, what's on the other side of that gate there? Well, that pasture right up there, they call the Elysian Field. You cross that, and you come to the Golden Street. That takes you right to the Celestial Palace, where the old master has his headquarters. Can I take your name to be St. Peter? I keep the gate, that's a fact. Well, uh, I'm mighty proud to met up with you. Just as proud to have you here, neighbor Simpson. Well, don't stand out here in the cold, cold world. Come on in and reap your heavenly reward. Uh, come on, Rip. Oh, hold on, neighbor Simpson. 
You can't take that dog in there. Ain't no fleas on that dog. That don't make no never mind. He can't come in. How come? This here is folks' heaven. There's another place we can put him, though, right up the road. Now, you just tie him to the fence there, and I'll walk him up for you a little later on. Come on, Rip. Now, hold on, neighbor Simpson. Where do you think you're going? Well, I thank you very much, but I don't reckon in there is any place for me. Well, why not? Well, any place that's too high for looting for Rip is too fancy for me. When Hyder decides he isn't going to go into what he thinks is heaven, he keeps walking down Eternity Road. But as I said earlier, this isn't the first time that Hyder and Rip have walked this road. In 1953, this very same story written by Earl Hamner was featured in another show called The Kate Smith Hour. And in this show, it wasn't called The Hunt, but it was called The Hound of Heaven. Now, who Kate Smith was is a rabbit hole in itself, but from what I can gather, she was a very big radio star, a successful singer, and she had two concurrent television shows running at the same time with the Kate Smith Hour, which I believe was an anthology show presented by her, and also the Kate Smith Evening Hour, which I think was more of a variety show from what I can gather. In our story, Hyder stops for a moment and is approached by a genuine angel, who informs him that where he just went wasn't heaven at all, it was actually hell. And in the Twilight Zone, that angel was played by Dexter Dupont. But in the Kate Smith Hour, the angel was played by a young James Dean, and the part of Hyder Simpson was played by a future Howling Man star, John Carradine. Now I wasn't able to find the whole thing, but the part I did find, James Dean seems to be playing it really big, you know, this strange voice, and he has these wings attached to his back that kind of sag down like they're made of paper or something but you know it's an interesting curio so why don't we listen to both of these scenes side by side the first is from the kate smith hour with the hound of heaven then next the twilight zone with the hunt i'm looking for a mr hyder simpson and a hound dog named rip that's us son yeah i figured it was <clears throat> well if you and Rip's all set, we might as well be moseying along. Mosey with? Heaven, Mr. Simpson. Now, like I was telling that fella, I ain't gonna sit foot in heaven without Rip. Oh, you didn't get messed up with nobody in there, did you? Well, that fella did behind the gate. He wouldn't let Rip in, so I didn't go in. Well, that'd be just a place of hell without Rip. <laughs> you ain't far from wrong, Mr. Simpson. That is hell. Heaven's on down the road there, peace. Well, how come that fella lied to me like that? I don't never give up. Always trying to get our folk in there right at the last minute. How come he wanted to keep Rip out? See, he was afeard that Rip would have warned you. And he would have, too, once he got a whiff of that brimstone. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you see, Mr. Simpson, a man... He walked right into hell with both eyes open. But not even a devil can fool a dog. Uh, I'm looking for a Mr. Hyder Simpson and a hound dog named Rip. Well, that's us. I figured it was. Well, if you and Rip's all set, we might as well mosey along. M mosey along where? Heaven, Mr. Simpson. Well, now, like I told that other fellow back up the road there, ain't gonna set foot in heaven without Rip. You didn't get messed up with nobody in there, did you? Well, that fella at the gate wouldn't let Rip in, so I didn't go. Son, that'd be a hell of a place without Rip. Mr. Simpson, you ain't far wrong. That is hell. Heaven's up yonder a piece. Well, I'll be jiggered. Now, how come that fella'd want to lie to me? Well, they don't never give up. Always trying to get folks in there right down to the last minute. Well, what reason would they have for wanting to keep Rip out? Well, they they was afeard Rip would have warned you. And he would have. Time he got a whiff of that brimstone. You see, Mr. Simpson, a man, well, he'll walk right into hell with both eyes open. But even the devil can't fool a dog. 
Not at all on purpose, it seems to have become a regular occurrence that I compare my own thoughts on an episode with Mark Zickrey's thoughts in the Twilight Zone Companion, and I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, he is one of the main commentators on the show, but he calls this one naive, badly directed, and only tolerably acted. And I'm going to quite enjoy listening to his commentary on the Blu-rays with this one because he did it with Earl Hamner and I'd kind of like to see whether he relays that to him during that commentary. Now I won't argue too much with him, I don't think The Hunt is an amazing episode, but I don't think it's as bad as he says. I think if you break it down and look at the component parts, not much truly shines in it but I do find the overall experience to be a good one. You know, it is a walk down a country road, a gentle stroll through the hills. In the Waltons, Elhamner Jr. entertained with a light touch. The day-to-day ups and downs of family life whispered onto the screen without need for shocks or bombast. And while I think he had clearly refined his art by the time he got to the Waltons, There's still an element of that here, where in the hunt you can just sit back and allow yourself to be carried along by the sweetness of it and the simplicity of it. In unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grahams Jr. documents a letter that Rod Serling received after this episode aired. And Martin Grahams Jr. writes, On January 27th, 1962, Charles E. Burgess, a minister for the Nichols Baptist Church located in Nichols, Georgia, drafted a written complaint to Serling. Though he admitted that he enjoyed watching The Twilight Zone, he condemned this story with a great deal of disgust, feeling it was misleading to the millions who were lost in the path of righteousness. It had a good moral to the story, Burgess wrote, but I feel it greatly misconstrued the teaching of the Holy Bible. Mr. Simpson's wife, the old woman, distinctly said, old man was not a member of the church. Insofar as the story went, the idea presented was that as long as a man leads a good moral life, goes raccoon hunting with his favourite hound, and does what he can to preserve his dog's life when the need arises, he is assured of the promised land. This is completely erroneous. Might I suggest you read Luke 18, 18, 24? This is a parable taught by Jesus concerning a man who kept all the commandments. I fully realize that your program was purely fictional, but still, that does not change the damage that was done. Thousands of ministers stand Sunday after Sunday condemning exactly what the program last night condoned. And then Martin Grahams Jr. documents Rod Sailing's response. Apologising that he found such questionable elements on the programme, responding with a candour equal to the letter received, Sailing explained that the narrow viewpoint of the fundamentalist religionists was not the universally accepted approach to the theological view. Since Mr. Burgess quoted the scripture, Sailing claimed he reserved the same right, as did the author, to dramatise yet another point of view. And Sailing says, It was Earl Hamner Jr.'s feeling, and mine, that good work, honesty, and a moral life are not of the essence in considering the whole man, his destiny, and his afterlife. While there are certainly thousands of ministers and parishioners who are in disagreement with this point of view, there are equal thousands who support it. It is my own sincere feeling that we presented a point of view which probably, though it did not correspond to that of some viewers, was nonetheless a fair and reasoned one. So I think this exchange is touching upon what I actually really appreciate about the hunt. As I said earlier, Earl Hamner was a man of faith, but as we see in the episode, Hyder Simpson was not. But again, like his father and John Walton, Hyder lives a good life. He loves his wife, he's liked by his neighbours and he cares for his dog. I don't think the raccoons are too fond of him, but you can't have everything. He is a good and decent man. So while it makes for a nice and gentle twist 
I don't think the hunt is so much about whether they will let the dog rip into heaven, nor is it about the devil trying to trick them, because that's to be expected. I actually think it's more about whether they'll let Hyder into heaven. It's about Hamner's experience of knowing good people who don't have faith, specifically his own father, or don't practice faith in the usual way, and acknowledging that they are still good people. It's about saying that there's more than one way of living a good life, even if it doesn't align with Hamner's way of living a good life. El Hamner doesn't monopolize heaven for the faithful, just the good, whether it's a dog or whether it's a man. And he doesn't say that it's only the faithful who are good. I haven't watched The Walton since I was a child, but I do vaguely recall him writing episodes where church-going characters were admonished for unchristian behavior by other characters, things like cruel words or gossip. So he was really open to examining these themes that it's not going to church that makes you a good person, it's what you do, it's your actions that decide that. And in this world of absolutes that we seem to be living in at the moment, I appreciate this gentle message from someone who says, you know, you may not be part of what I choose to be a part of, but you're still a good and decent person, and that's enough. Hyder Simpson was welcomed into heaven, so in Hamner's eyes, you may not believe in heaven, but if you lead a good life, then heaven still believes in you. The Hunt is another Twilight Zone examination of death, this time told by a man of faith, but not with such force that a person who doesn't have faith feels they're being preached to. In fact, it's very welcoming of those who are not religious. It's nowhere near as successful, I don't think, as George Clayton Johnson's Nothing in the Dark, but I appreciate its similar portrayal of death as not so much an ending but the turning of a corner, a walk down a different road. Nothing in the dark removes religion from that equation, whereas the hunt gently brings it back. But the good thing is, this is the twilight zone, and whatever you believe, you can still take some comfort in both. Travelers to unknown regions would be well advised to take along the family dog he could just save you from entering the wrong gate. At least it happened that way once, in a mountainous area of the Twilight Zone. So there we go, another Twilight Zone off our list. So let's get to some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. Our friend Jack, who we heard from last time, said, Thanks so much for reading my letter about Bill last episode. I have passed the episode on to his family and friends and the folks at Broken Sea and hope they can enjoy subscribing to the Twilight Zone podcast as much as I have. Well, thank you. And he says, It's a little Twilight Zone-esque that you are going to talk about the hunt. I listen to about a hundred different podcasts as my own requires me to keep up with some up-and-coming audio drama shows, but I always try to listen to a few shows whenever an episode comes out. Twilight Zone, of course, is one of them. Another is Mysterious Universe. Strangely enough, this week's episode of Mysterious Universe reminded me exactly of The Hunt. Without getting too deeply into the weeds, part of the show spoke about a person who died, trapped under his horse in the past, and instead of going into the light, Apparently, a stranger that looked like an angel with dark eyes got the dead man to follow him into a kind of hell where he would be in servitude forever. The Hunt is one of those shows that I consider to be a little overlooked by people's top lists. It's a light story with very dark undertones, and at least for a young Jack, a fascinating twist. Interesting how the roles were reversed in the Mysterious Universe episode where the evil character was seeking dead people, while in the Twilight Zone, Hyder bumped into the gates of hell. 
It's a reminder that if you're planning to die, always bring a dog with a good nose for the infernal. Keep on casting, my friend. Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. You know, I'm always open to new suggestions and uh, maybe I'll check that one out. Thank you. Our old friend Rob Galise sent me an email and he said, Tom, I finished listening to your podcast about Dead Man's Shoes. We are both in agreement that the episode was a bit lacking, but the lead actor, Warren Stevens, did a great job. The story had potential, but seemed to stall during the first act. Stevens, however, made the most of his time on the screen and made the episode worth watching. Normally, the Twilight Zone gives evildoers their comeuppance. They tend to get what they deserve, reap what they sow. This time, Dane is already dead when the story starts and not at the hands of the Twilight Zone. As a matter of fact, he benefits from it and is able to take a crack at the people who killed him. And at the end, he seems so sure he will come back again. We believe him too. This is an interesting take on Twilight Zone's treatment of a criminal. I wonder why such a bad apple is given such a gift. As for the interview with the gentleman who hosts the Twilight Zone escape room, if you need an escape room teammate, I'm your man. I live just a few hours away from Binghamton and would love to be there for the Sailing Fest next year. Just say the word, all my best, and thanks for the great work on the podcast. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, Hold that thought for a minute. I'll talk about that after I've got through a couple of emails, okay? As far as Dane's treatment in Dead Man's Shoes, and I realised in that episode I switched names like nobody's business. I was going from Nate to Dane to Bledsoe all over the show but hopefully you got the idea but yeah you know it is an interesting take because i think if this was maybe a rod sailing script then that aspect of people getting what they deserve seems to be a little more present in sailing's work whereas beaumont would often just write you know off the wall tales so i think that's what i put it down to i don't think usual Twilight Zone rules apply all the time with Beaumont. I kind of see him as the more out there part of the Twilight Zone, the part that we don't necessarily understand. But uh, thanks for writing in, Rob. Okay, new friend of the show, Jay, wrote in and he said, I can only say positive things about the show. Your knowledge is incredible. Well, you know, I have to hold my hands up to that one, Jay. It's not my knowledge, to be honest. It's... uh, It's all these great people who wrote great Twilight Zone books. I started loving Twilight Zone in the 80s. I used to watch it at 11.30 in the summer, away from school. It always creeped me out, but deep down, I knew it was teaching me something. I think one of my favourite stories is The Howling Man. It shows us that evil hides in different clothing and can truly be any one of us. The ending, when he walks the halls of the monk's home, is very haunting. He changes right before the viewer's eyes. It haunted me for years as a child. Your ape show was fantastic. Living in the States, I hope to see the Twilight Zone play if it makes it here. The 50s and 60s brought much in good television. I encourage you to seek out Dark Shadows. The creator Dan Curtis, like Rod Serling, had a heck of an imagination. Both come from the same generation. Dark Shadows changed my life as a child. In closing, I love your show and hope to support. Your extra content sounds intriguing. Can I only get extra content on the website? Let me know. Submitted for your approval, Jay. Well, thank you, Jay. You know, Dark Shadows, it's something that I've heard people mention, obviously, over the years. I know it's got a really big cult following. I won't say I'll probably get to check it out soon because this takes up probably too much time for that. But, you know, one day I'd like to... I always like to dip my toe into something that other people are passionate about and see whether I can kind of get the center of what it's all about and what makes people get into it so much. So hopefully one day I will check it out. Um, as for extra content, that's on patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. And there's shows about uh, where I read short stories there and also where I look at the 80s Twilight Zone as well. So check it out. Hopefully there's something for you to enjoy there. And speaking of that, one of my guests on that 80s Twilight Zone podcast is our next writer, old friend of the show, Al. And he says, Hi Tom, listen to your Dead Man's Shoes podcast today. It was excellent as usual, but I was surprised to find you as down on the episode as you are. 
It's not one of my favourites, but I think it's a good little episode with some nice moments. And as you noted, Warren Stevens is wonderful. I think one of the major differences between the way you view it and the way I view it is that I think of the homeless man Nate Bledsoe as being the main character rather than Dane the gangster. You are right that Dane is unsympathetic, but poor Nate goes to his death simply because he grabbed a pair of dead man's shoes. Is that a crime worthy of the kind of Twilight Zone retribution that he gets? Of course not. So I view this episode as a very tragic one. You are critical of the opening scene where Nate has not yet been completely taken over, but that scene does allow us to glimpse Nate and get a sense that he's essentially a good guy. The only other time we see him is when he finds himself in the bathroom and is terrified of what is happening to him. I feel very strongly for Nate, and I only want Dane to succeed because I don't want Nate to suffer as a result of failure. When Nate dies, Dane doesn't. The whole thing is going to happen all over again, and some other poor guy is going to pay for it. You can read this as the plight of the innocent bystander caught in the crossfire. Whether in crime or in war on terrorism, the poor person swept up and suffering in some larger affair that shouldn't concern or involve them. As I said, I think it's a good episode. It's not it's a good life, but I think it is compared to some of the others you'll encounter in season three, such as A Piano in the House, Showdown with Rance McGrew, and Cavender is Coming. Since I especially enjoy the podcasts about episodes I don't like, I can't wait to hear what you say about those. A few other Twilight Zone related items I wanted to mention first, since I'm all caught up on the Twilight Zone podcast and the Patreon stuff, I went back to the beginning and listened again to Where Is Everybody and One for the Angels. You are definitely putting together more solid and expanded shows these days, chock full of everything you've learned along the way, but these early episodes are still well done and a real pleasure, nothing to be ashamed of. Mr. Denton on Doomsday is next. Now this is because um, on Twilight Zone Aftermath, the Patreon show where we talk about the 80s show, um, I get patrons on and we talk about the 80s show and Al came on and Al is throwing his hat into the podcast and ring soon with an Alfred Hitchcock Presents podcast. And I listened to the first episode of that and it's really well put together and I said to Al, you know, I go, if I listen to the original episode of the Twilight Zone podcast it kind of makes me cringe a little bit and Al starts his show at a much higher level than I started the Twilight Zone podcast so that's what this is relating to so I'm glad you were able to listen to Al and he says I've been trying to track down and listen to as many of the Twilight Zone shows as I can it is interesting to compare them to the originals they run the gamut from good adaptations of good shows to bad shows that can't be saved no matter how hard Dennis Etchison tries but the ones I especially like are the ones that turn blah episodes into good radio shows. I recently listened to The Arrival, an episode of which I am not fond. The radio version does so many more interesting things with it. First, the plane that lands is a DC-3, as I think it is in the show. I thought at first that Etchison kept the DC-3 because he needed a propeller for the big moment when Sheckley sticks his hand into it to prove the plane is an illusion, but Etchison does so much more with that. He makes it a DC-3, because that's what Sheckley, in his obsession, expects to see. And the whole notion of creating illusions because of what you expect to see also resonates today because of the number of people who believe what they want to believe, no matter the evidence. I'll say no more in case you haven't listened to this one. Dennis Etchison is a fine horror short story writer in his own right. And you can really see that in some of these radio shows. You know, Al, he is someone who I would love to have to show. I haven't really took the time to see whether that's a possibility yet. I'm kind of focusing on trying to get a few more episodes under my belt of the actual Twilight Zone. But I would love to speak to him at some time. Keep the good stuff coming, Tom. Best, Al. Oh, and you can sign me up for your escape room group in Binghamton next year. Well, you know, this uh, escape room group... Starting to come into shape, isn't it? As I said in the last episode, I am saving my pennies to try and get to Binghamton next year in the hope that there is some 60th anniversary sailing fest, which surely there must be. So I want to go there. I want to be there for the whole thing. And, you know, whether we go into the escape room or not, 
If you're a listener to the Twilight Zone podcast and you're there, then I want to meet you. You know, I, I want to meet you all. So it would be such a great thing to be in Binghamton and meet listeners to the show and, you know, tour the town, check out what's going on with the Sailing Fest. You know, what a dream that'd be. So the 60th anniversary, it's tailor-made, isn't it, for me to go to Binghamton and check that out. So if anyone does go along, then do let me know. I guess we're a little far out now, so, you know, we will keep our eye on this. We will keep our eye on it. Hopefully, if I'm there and any listeners are there, then I will get to meet you. But thanks very much for that, Al. Okay, so there is another Twilight Zone podcast under our belt. I want to say thank you to iTunes reviewer RX York PA82 for a nice iTunes review. Thank you. And anyone who wants to get in touch, then please do email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. Emails or MP3s to put in the show are always welcome. And if you want to get extra content and support the show as well, then please go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. So why don't we go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, we offer you a Hollywood television cowboy who takes in several bills a week for killing off bad men. Mr. Larry Blyton portrays one of these phony balonies who always wins in the end. But in this little item, he draws from the hip and realizes his opponent is smack dab out of this world. We invite your attention to Showdown with Rance McGrew. Next week's Stagecoach Sojourn in the Twilight Zone. is an age of amazing feats, and the fuel that has kept us going is faith. Worship together this week.